Before we start, we would like to inform you that this episode was recorded on November 26, 2019. Hello and welcome to TechNACT, a podcast where we have conversations with different people doing research or activism in relation to social movements, gender, sexualities, and digital technologies. My name is Onur. And my name is Nadia. In this episode of our podcast, we are joined by Cathy Urquhart. Uh, she is a professor of digital business at Manchester Metropolitan Business School in the United Kingdom. And her expertise is on grounded theory, theory building, and qualitative research methods in information systems. Hi, Cathy. Welcome. How are you doing? Fine. I'm very happy to be here. I'm looking forward to being part of your first, your very first podcast. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. We are very happy to have you here. Yeah, definitely. So earlier today, um, you were a guest speaker here at uh, University of Gothenburg, and you were talking about an important missing point on uh, theory developments for information systems, which were the uh, theoretical mechanisms. Um, can you tell us, our listeners, um, a little bit of, of this? Uh, okay, <laughs> I'll try not to reprise the whole seminar, but basically what I was talking about today was the idea that we can use something called theoretical mechanisms to help us build theory. And fundamentally, a mechanism can be a bit of true theory, it can be objects, entities, actions and in fact a mechanism can be a number of things but what a mechanism does is it explains something so that's what a mechanism is doing now as a grounded theorist I've always been interested in theories and how they're built and I would see mechanisms as a way of enabling us to really understand not just the themes or constructs in our theory but also how those themes relate to each other and the idea really that mechanisms are a, a causal notion, i.e. there is always something happening. Now, for many years, as an interpretive researcher, I found the idea of causality quite problematic. Um, until I read Marcus and Rowe, 2018, who talk about constitutive causality. And this is the idea that causality can be intertwined, it can be situated, and it's about meaning, and that's based on Wittgenstein's uh, philosophy. And so for me now, I would say that I'm just interested in mechanisms per se, and I I don't want to call them causal mechanisms, because in our discipline, that people tend to associate that with critical realism. Mm -hmm. Um, What I'm talking about here is the idea of mechanisms for everyone just a way of us building better theories in the discipline of information systems mechanisms mechanisms have been used in sociology uh, psychology there are lots of kind of parallel conversations in other disciplines about mechanisms as well and i just hope you to popularize them in our discipline actually it was a great um 
a really really good seminar i enjoyed a lot thank you thank you oh, so much thank for you coming here. yeah so we were wondering how did you uh, become a researcher well how, how did that happen <laughs> <laughs> how did i become a researcher um accidentally as maybe for so many of us i was actually working as a systems analyst and a programmer and my husband at the time and i were having some issues and so we went on a teaching course together um and we both qualified but we also split up (laughs) (laughs) Um, but no this is my first husband not my current husband it's a long time ago now and through um teaching i came in contact with a number of academics and one of them suggested that i do a master's familiar story so as i was doing the master's I became more and more interested in research, obviously, and that master's was later converted to a PhD when I went to the University of Tasmania in Australia. And it was there in 1995 that I discovered grounded theory, and it's been bringing joy and interest to my life ever since. And it's it's really fired my interest in how we build theories. So for me, to me, it's incredibly important that um, we all know what a theory would look like if we fell over it in the dark, as I say. You know, um, one problem that we have, I think, in information systems and possibly other disciplines as well, mm-hmm. is the, the notion of theory is taken as just a theory. And yet, certainly there's been debates in information systems that reveal that we have no consensus on what a theory is at all. And I think it would help the, our contribution as a discipline immeasurably if we could actually be more conscious about our theory building and really think about our contribution and i think we have a contribution to make Agreed. yes that's very interesting and in in your research you are also uh, giving value to the i think interdisciplinary approaches and how the different disciplines can can be connected to each other and in our project we also have a similar like yeah. we have an approach transdisciplinary <laughs> approach which is bringing together uh, researchers from in, um, information systems and from cultural sciences and social sciences, where we aim to do a research on uh, digital technologies and their impacts on social movements and activism, and especially when it comes to activism in feminist activism and LGBTQ activism for seeking social justice. And in terms of that, the impact of social media is there and important. And we live in an actually digital age now, as we all know. And my question here is, and the emerging technologies must have certain impacts on society and individuals. And how do you see the relationship of, of the social and the digital as an information systems researcher? Well, you've asked the... I don't know, the million kroner question really here. Um, because I actually see what you've just said, understanding the interrelationship between technology and society as the kind of key challenge for information systems. And I think that information systems as a discipline is uniquely placed to solve this because what we're interested in is the juxtaposition of technology and the social. And what I am absolutely fascinated by, and I'm sure you are too, especially in social media, is how, if you like, the material properties of the technology 
then start to both enable and constrain the social. And I think particularly with social media, if you look, for instance, how the Facebook feed has been redesigned over many years to try and promote certain types of social interaction or how um, many misunderstandings and mistakes occur because of the material property of the technology. Now, I'm not saying for one moment that sociologists do not have a lot and political scientists do not have a lot to contribute because I think when we're looking at these societal problems, then you do need this interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary exactly. approach. But at the same time, what I think is what is unique about information systems is that we are studying that nexus. And I suppose what we've got now um, in the theories of socio-materiality is, is a sort of ontological foundation to start to understand that slightly more. Um, Though, of course, as is typical in information systems, there's all sorts of arguments about what social materiality actually is. But, un but bringing the, not bringing the material to the fore exactly, but understanding that intertwining, I think, is a real challenge and hopefully what the two of you can bring to the project that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. That would be... Yes, <laughs> hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> yes, the Holy Grail. Yeah. Yes. Hopefully we can do that. And like your opinion on how, what role do you think digital technologies and let's say social media play in claiming social justice? Because there were certain movements uh, in different contexts where people utilized from social media a lot, but there can be also certain threats to these movements. Do you have any opinion on how, how social media like positively or negatively impact these moments and what are the threats over there oh i have so many opinions <laughs> on this um social media is wonderful the way it allows people to link up and organize the way it allows people to um, collectively link up with people in similar circumstances all over the world it it levels it has in the past, notice I'm saying in the past, really levelled the playing field between people and governments. Mm -hmm. um, but I, you know, the approach I take to this is really almost like a, a discourse approach. Um, if you think about the fact that what social media allows ordinary people to do is influence the discourse. And if you think of, for instance, what happened, the, the killing of... Um, that poor young woman in Iran in 2009. Um, I think her surname was Sultani, I can't remember her first name. Now, that all went all around the world. We had the Iranian Green Revolution, mm -hmm. and yet nothing changed. And so you look at repressive regimes, such, you know, China is a good example, Iran would be another, where that discourse becomes very, very tightly controlled. And then we look at the Cambridge Analytica scandal mm -hmm. and we look about how people's own data is kind of being used against them yes. to manipulate them. And so you see that, you know, it's always, if you like, a struggle for control of the discourse. So it used to be that rich men could own newspapers. Now what they're doing to gain power is to um, look, you know, to buy Facebook adverts. So on the news this morning, 
there was a Facebook ad- advert that had been pulled in the UK <coughs> when it was found to, although it was political, it was supposed to be against Facebook's policy, and the reason it was pulled is because it's now Facebook's policy to say who it is being funded by. But for um, for a long time now, maybe several years, we could also lay Brexit at the door of social media if we so desired. We, there is some evidence that Russian troll farms have you know, manufactured a discourse. So then we move on to the, the dark side, if you like, and what ordinary people can do. But I still, I'm an optimist and I still think it's a, a tool for, for, for good. But I think, you know, if you look at also what's happening in developing countries, maybe all of us should be thinking more carefully about our own data rights and not give them away the way we do. So I think it's a mixed picture and it's going to be very interesting to see what will transpire. But then again, maybe just the sheer multiplicity of um, social media will mean that it can never be fully controlled. And this is what we would hope. Mm-hmm. Yes, great. And I yeah, totally agree that because people who live under oppression in certain places, they used to be using uh, physical spaces for their activism, but now in digital media, they have this new space mm. that they can utilize, they can use, and that's very arbitrary. And in many ways, it can be used against these people, as we, as we have been seeing in different examples in Turkey, Russia, in other contexts, especially just after the social movements, how people were being interrogated just because their social media postings. And uh, so the state power, is still there and still a controlling mechanism. But I'm also wondering, do you have, because this is something lacking in social sciences that we are having trouble to understand how the technologies work as as people from uh, having different approach on these uh, subjects. And how, uh, how do uh, algorithms, for example, work in this case? How do they define user participation in social media do you think it is connected to this interrogation or uh, do you see any connection between this? Um, I think it's important for me as an information systems person and an ex-programmer to put forward the point that when we build any kind of system, it we're building it on concepts and ideas and it reflects the values and the attitudes of the person that is designing it and the company that is designing it. So I think there is a real problem, say in developing countries in particular, where you have systems that are rolled out that actually have a completely different set of assumptions about how people are going to use it. Now you do see often a lot of subversion, you know, that people use for instance, social media in ways we might not expect and in creative and innovative ways. And I think the notion of affordances is quite a useful kind of analytical peg to think about how the potential of a particular social media might be actualized. And that helps us to get to the, the grips of, to, to, to get into how the materiality of the technology might be affecting what's going on. 
Um, I also have a question for you, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which is, do you think that given that Google and Facebook have so much citizens' data, they own an infrastructure that we all depend on every day, do you think they should be accountable? And if so, how? I have, I have opinions on that. <laughs> um, I think we have talked before about this mm-hmm. and I, I told him exactly uh, when we were discussing um, on, on the questions that we were going to, to, um, to make to you and all this, uh, we, we get into this algorithm part. And I told him, well, it's not that the algorithm per se, it's, the, it's, the, it's bad. It's not the technology per se, it's bad. It's who's behind it, right? Like Absolutely. The, the Who's person, written it and for what purpose? Exactly. Like you were saying, like f- from your perspective of an ex-programmer, you put your values and your uh, biases sometimes your to assumptions this, about your the assumptions, user. So all these other things come in place when you're going to program something, and this includes algorithms, and this includes the design of a particular technology. Me as an as an electronic engineer when we were also designing something, um, we were also thinking and making assumptions on what's, what's this, um, our, in our mind, who's going to be the user, right? But then the user might be not necessarily female sometimes, right? Not a child. Uh, for example, I, I was telling him, um, when this, um, this controls of the Xbox first uh, came out, they were so huge, and no one that did not have these huge hands could use it. So the person that designed this was not thinking that maybe a woman or maybe a child would be using, or maybe a man with smaller hands would be using these controls. So this is a thing. It's not that the technology, I think it's wrong per se, or it's bad per se, it's like the evil, it's who's behind it. So in terms of what you were asking on, uh, having accountable for, for example, Google or these big um, companies or this big, uh, the, the ones that held the, the data of us right now. I think it's also what's happening with, uh, with the people that actually build these algorithms to do what? And what is the people doing with this data now, right? So <clears throat> this is one of the biggest questions of our age because yes. what um, Facebook, Twitter, all predicated on the idea if you've got better data about people, you can sell them more stuff. Yes. So yes. it's all about building up a very targeted profile of individuals. And I think that has huge consequences yes. for, for data privacy. And so in a way, it's quite interesting you know, you think about, you know, Facebook has, you know, Facebook, WhatsApp, they have done a lot of good in the world just by allowing people, not, they, they haven't allowed it, but people have taken control, if you like, the affordances and the ability, for instance, to organise in a group. Um, there is a, perhaps a sort of darker uh, interpretation is that if people interact over technology, they're not less likely to band together on the streets, as it were. But certainly at the moment in the UK with Brexit, I'm, we're not seeing that. We're seeing how the activism online then bolsters, if you like, the physical activism. 
Definitely, we're, we're mm. seeing also that in, in Latin America mm. with uh, everything that is happening. I'm not sure Chile. if you're, yeah, yeah in yeah, Chile, yeah. not yeah. only in Chile, yeah. Ecuador as well, yeah, yeah. Bolivia. Um, it, it happened also in Colombia. I mean, it had happened before where these digital spaces uh, then become some sort of like calling for mm. uh, physical activism. Uh, so I think it, I think it started, maybe not started, but it was a visible one with uh, Egypt. Uh, remember, like a few oh, years yes, back. Oh yes, yes, the the Arab they, Spring. The, yes, exactly. When this, when this social media, Facebook, happened to be the place where they would be like, well, they are not allowing us to do this on street. Then we're doing it mm. here, and then we're calling people to just actually, you know, show up. Uh, in a physical space and actually take action in a political way and it changed a lot of things there mm-hmm. and now for example in Chile and Ecuador and Bolivia and everything that's happening there it's also they're also trying to make these changes and um, it's pushing the but, but what I would say thing. is the more insidious threat is where different interests try and take control of that particular discourse mm-hmm. online exactly. and and certainly in the UK it's happened in a very hidden way so on Facebook you've got groups that are we have had groups that claim to be grassroots groups and then you find in fact they're not grassroots at all they have been funded by someone close to the government for a particular purpose and yes. that's not declared anywhere. Yes, yes. Mm. And these digital spaces can also be having very positive impact mm. for certain groups who cannot increase their voices or who cannot be heard in many cases. If I need to give an example, uh, you might remember Gezi protests took place in Turkey in 2013. And surprisingly, uh, this movement had so many different groups because it was a protest against the government and against neoliberalism and increasing authoritarianism in the country, but LGBTQ community and activists were in a very at the forefront of the movement thanks to the digital media. They set the main discourse, and they this these digital spaces provided these uh, encounters with different groups of people and who were exposed to for the first time LGBTQ discourse, and they changed how the discourse of activism has been formulated in Turkey, including more queer and LGBTQ perspective in this. So in that sense, digital spaces can be also very uh, creating these possibilities, which is not easily possible at the urban space, at the physical space. There are some very interesting points in what you say, because we're also then talking about questions of identity. Yes. And... um, I remember seeing a film um, just recently, actually. I watched it again called Pride, which is about how the um, how um, gays and lesbians supported the miners. Working, yeah, miners. And so even in the early 80s without social media, you know, they understood, you know, that there was a parallel between oppressed groups. And so I would argue probably as you would, that Mm -hmm. social media would allow people to find that connection more. But at the same time, if we look at, say, Extinction Rebellion, which is a massive movement all over the world, it's being being criticised because it's too white 
and too middle class. <laughs> so, you know, so some very sort of complex and interesting um, questions of identity. And one thing to think about from a political perspective, perhaps, is that uh, politics has shifted from a politics of economics to a politics of um, identity. And again, one question that's sort of interesting to pose is how much, but the economics still matter. And people's economic rights, I think, still matter. And I think it's a question as to how to uh, perhaps reckon, you know, so the identity can be, the politics of identity are wonderful, empowering and helpful, but they can be also used by certain people to divide everybody and to other certain groups. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas, in fact, many of us perhaps would be united by economic issues, for instance. Yes. yes. So politics of redistribution, yes, especially, absolutely. can be very impactful yes. in this yes. kind of uh, possibilities of political participation yes. mm. as well. Yeah. Yes. Definitely, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, com com coming back to another uh, point that you were saying about transdisciplinary perspectives that um, mm -hmm. we were talking about before. Um, so you now are in your research are using transdisciplinary perspectives on theory development or um, are you maybe thinking maybe choose this oh this no path, dear, I could talk so long about this <laughs> so allow me to <laughs> allow me to talk about this okay so historically information systems as a discipline and possibly management to some extent definitely accounting they're newer disciplines so the newer academic disciplines so what newer academic disciplines tend to do is they're quite nervous i think about their ability to build theories themselves so they will pull in some reference disciplines now in information systems and actually and in accounting and in software engineering and in management there's been a lot of navel gazing over the past few years about the lack of native theories in those disciplines. And I suppose my perspective as a grounded theorist is the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to build a theory from the data. It's one of the most important aspects of theory is the theory needs to be empirically based, right? And if you think about the way Newton did it, it was by observation, right? Now, the beauty of grounded theory is that it looks at what the data is telling you. It doesn't come in with a previous superimposed theory and try and force the theory on the data. So I think, you know, regardless of whether you're a grounded theory or not, looking carefully at the data and, and working out what the data is telling you rather than going with the preconceived notion is quite helpful. Now, I am not saying that reference theories are unhelpful. I'm not saying that you might not want to use large formal theories from sociology. Um, you know, I've talked before about the sort of prevailing discourses, I think, you know, looking at political discourses. There's lots of theories that you could use. 
at a large formal level. But what I am saying is that we should be building theories from the ground up, from the empirics. And I'm also interested in information systems actually coming up with some native theories of its own. But I think in order to do that, there has to be much more collaboration between those of us that build theories and those of us that test them. And we need to think more systematically about how we might move a particular theory into um, another area. Now, granted, theory has very clear and extensive guidance on how to do that. And you can broaden the scope of a theory or densify it. But we don't have that mindset in journal publication. Mm -hmm. We have the, the mindset it has to be new. So, you know, the number of new, you know, you could come up with another new theory of political movements on social media. You could, um, you know, with a particular reference to LGBTQ and gender. But in my mind, it would be actually very important for you <laughs> to then look at what the reference disciplines are and look at what other people have done. Mm. Because, you know, because I suppose another way, of, another way of looking at it is, though I would like to see theory building efforts joined up in my discipline, if that's not going to happen, I can join up my theory building effort with other larger theories from outside the discipline. Hmm. That is true. Do you see any, I mean, you have mentioned that there are some, some nascent type of theories coming but do you have do you see maybe a, a trend coming from the is information well, systems going to I'm, that it's i'm as always nigeria i'm quite optimistic one thing i did notice when doing all this research about mechanisms is though mechanisms historically has come from the sort of critical realist camp now more people are talking about mechanisms anyway and i just think it's a very very useful shorthand for people to start to think about what their theory is actually saying it allows them to explain it so in a way mechanisms might be an acceptable way to say well this is what I'm looking at this is the sort of theory that I'm building so I think it's already giving people permission mm -hmm. to say you know in a way I suppose what I'm saying is you know grounded theory is a kind of minority pursuit in information systems but mechanisms might be a slightly broader pursuit that gives people permission to say oh well this is the mechanism this is the framework that I'm putting forward mm -hmm. and I think that's quite useful so in terms of specific nascent theories I have been quite pleased to see various mechanisms come from social media actually and that's been interesting because some of those studies have both quantitative and qualitative data and so they have a very kind of firm empirical underpinning that is actually we were we were talking a little bit before coming uh, to yes. meet you we were talking about because i was i was telling him what you were saying of in in, in the the seminar and then we moved a little bit on this part that you were saying about how if you're a qualitative researcher then you're one thing and if you're a quantitative researcher then you're another thing and there's this gap and where like you were saying like social media maybe might be mixing this too right mm -hmm. 
or but I I also think that there might be other places. I my my personal itch is uh, video games. It's fascinating because in video games you have so many different not professions and areas that you mix because it's like a video game. It's like an artistic technology. Absolutely. So it's because people that from the art they come and put like some very cool hmm. uh, story or very cool um, character and then there's these uh, group of developers like programmers and they, they come and make it alive right and then you can you as a user can come and play like be these this character hmm. in, in this magnificent world but it's still a digital world so these different things and there's not enough I would I would say that there is not enough uh, research on this on this mixed type of I things. Was, I was going to say something similar. I was going to kind of go back to one of the things I said in the seminar, which is about theories of the problem and theories of the solution. So this idea that our theories should be addressing real world problems, mm -hmm. and that also our research should use the tools that are appropriate to solve the research problem. So you don't say, oh, I'm a grounded theorist, because grounded theory may not always be appropriate, or it may be that a mixed approach is needed. Or you can say, well, I do variance models, so that's what I'm going to do. That doesn't always work. So it's about looking at the demands of the research problem. And certainly with the video games, you know, having observed my own children, um, I wonder, and this is the, maybe a theory of a problem or a theory of a solution, which is, you know, what happens to a whole generation that has been transplanted into this world? And is it, you know, what does that do to someone's brain structure when you're growing up? You know, is it any different from the previous generation watching movies all the time? I have no idea. Um, but you, if you wanted to start to abstract you could say that potentially this generation is a much more visual generation. Yes. Yeah. So what's that doing? And why has academia not really um, reflected those kind of um, efforts? Why is it in social media research, for instance, that we, we fail to analyse the images? We're still analysing the text. Yes. Because you know the visuals convey emotion and we have a whole generation now that is far more visually perhaps stimulated than the previous generation definitely you think maybe it's because of many um like i mean this these big theories are built on analyzing text or like maybe oldish that they are not uh, so Mm, so malleable, so you, they can fit the new type of paradigm paradigms that I think we are that's right. Now. I think because you have now got these kind of affordances that are completely new, that what might happen is that your reference theory probably would hold most of the time for human behavior, right? Because human behavior has been studied for a long time, you know, how people interact socially. But it might be that the affordances of the technology are putting a new twist on that, they're 
enabling a different type of behaviour. So it might be a case of extending those reference disciplines, perhaps. And I think you're entirely correct to say that this is why I think theory building is so important um, when you're talking about technology, because the other thing I would remind people is that there is nothing to stop you building um, a lower level, small framework, a small substantive theory, which then you can perhaps relate to these larger reference theories if you need to, when you probably will need to. Yes, yes, definitely. Yes, yes. Well, unfortunately, we're, we're running, running out, out of time. time. <laughs> yeah, we're running out of time. But this this conversation has been so interesting. It was amazing. Yes, thank you so 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 much for your time. Oh, thank for you everything. for making it so interesting. It's been an absolute <laughs> pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, hopefully, maybe in the future we can have another chat and another episode to talk about different things. But. Definitely. That would be delightful. Thank, Thank you. you so, so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. We hope you like it. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. You can follow us on Technact was brought to you by the University of Gothenburg and the research cluster Technact. If you want to learn more about our cluster, please listen to our launching episode. See you next time. See you. Thank mm-hmm. you.